I'm Nadia, dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor, and welcome to Good Enough Nutrition, the podcast, a space where we chat all about nutrition and well-being, intuitive eating, body image, and a sprinkle of all things periods and hormones. I'm here to remind you that guilt has no place near our food or bodies, and that you are good enough, as you are, always. So let's dig in. Team, welcome back to another episode of Good Enough Nutrition. In today's episode, it's going to be slightly different. So, I was recently interviewed on a radio show and a podcast and had some interesting questions thrown my way, and it put me in the mood for a bit of a rant about diet culture. So, in this episode today, I'm going to re ask myself the same questions or similar questions on similar topics and get on my soapbox for you all. So if you're interested in a rant about diet culture, keep listening. So in the episode, based on the questions that I was asked, I'm going to cover what's the difference between a quote-unquote healthy weight loss approach and crash diets, what is the potential risk associated with rapid weight loss, What role can proper nutrition play in the eating disorder recovery process? How can people distinguish between an evidence-based nutrition guidance and fad diets or misinformation on the internet? Why I don't focus on weight in my practice? CSIRO healthy diet score report and why media should do better in their reporting on the topic of food and nutrition? What's the issue when healthcare providers focus on weight and what is intuitive eating? So there's a little bit of a mix of topics there based on the different questions I was asked, but I will do my best to stick to the questions and not go off on a tangent about diet culture, but no promises. But before we get into that, as always, I wanted to talk about what's been lighting me up recently. And what comes to mind is that a couple of weeks ago, I did a skateboarding workshop. So my beautiful friend Heidi, who is right into extreme sports, she loves things like surfing, skateboarding, mountain biking, snowboarding, all of the things that I'm too afraid to do. (laughs) Um, But her and her colleague actually taught myself and four other Uh, people to skate for I think we did it from like nine to four on a Saturday and we just lucked out with the most beautiful weather so they kicked us off as and thank god they did they started off very beginner they started us off with hoverboards which are pretty much just skateboards without wheels and we progressed to the point where we were even going down ramps and it was so much fun it has reminded me how much fun it can be to do something new particularly something uh new that's like physical in terms of moving bodies in a different way and overcoming the fear of doing that i am a self-professed perfectionist and people pleaser so often i find it really hard to do something new without getting frustrated but i guess it was really lucky in the way that a lot of us were all started around a similar level you know I used to skateboard but I haven't done it since I was like 12 or 13 and even then I didn't skateboard a lot so it was really nice um, to have people coach us in a way that was really supportive didn't have any expectations but started us from the basics and then we kind of worked up from there after the session I actually went on Facebook marketplace and bought myself a little skateboard and then I went and bought some really cute protective gear as well so I am ready to go 
we will see how long I keep up this hobby. Um, I would imagine it will result in a fair few bruises and scrapes, but that's exactly why I have the protective gear. So fingers crossed, I'll get better and better. I will put a little bit of a carousel of images up on my Instagram if you want to see. But if you yourself has tri have tried anything new recently, feel free to reach out and let me know what it was. I would love to hear it. I am definitely looking for hobbies that have nothing to do with work recently. So yeah, let me know what you're into and that'll be a lot of fun. But let's uh, get into the episode. So about, I think it was about a week ago, I was on the radio. Now, I myself am terrible with keeping up with the news, but what prompted uh, them to contact me was that they, they wanted someone to comment on a recent CSIRO research report that was released that week, and they wanted someone to kind of offer their perspective. If you didn't hear about the research or the report, don't worry, I will do a little summary about what it found and the reporting on it prior to you know answering some of the questions that I was asked on the radio and then secondly I had some journalism students reach out to interview me on a podcast for an assignment the topics they were wanting to cover were eating disorders body image and social media and so they've sent me a list of questions and some of the questions are pretty interesting in truth and very hard to answer um but so I thought I might have a go at uh, asking them to me <laughs> and answering them for you on this podcast here. The two interviews really overlapped in the way that they wanted or I wanted to take a real critical view of how the media reports on nutrition and specifically their very kind of black and white views of things that you know lack the nuance that I think is required when conversing about the topic of nutrition. So I thought seeing as I have my own podcast and it's a nice extended format, I could answer those questions with a little bit more nuance while simultaneously having a rant about diet culture and anti-fatness and getting that off my chest, which is always a nice thing to do. So I think I'll start with the questions from the podcast interview as I have the exact ones and then I'll transition to the radio interview where I don't actually have the exact questions, but I've kind of written down a couple of topics from memory to talk through. So let's kick it off. The first question that I got was, can you explain the difference between a quote unquote healthy weight loss approach and crash diets? Now, this question took me a little off guard. I think it's because it, the question itself makes the assumption that weight loss is quote unquote healthy when done right. And so I found it quite hard to answer due to that anti-fat bias that is baked into this question. But I did my best. So I found it helpful to kind of break it down. If we kick it off with the easy part, that is crash diets. So what are crash diets? They are often more extreme you know if we have a spectrum of mild to extreme or easy to hard crash diets would be more on the extreme or the hard end and they involve changes to what we're eating so they might limit food or food groups often how much we're eating so they will usually restrict calories overall and sometimes the timing of eating so if we think about newer diets like intermittent fasting or time restricted eating 
Crash diets are often more rigid and radical and the crash part of them refers to the fact that the changes are often made rapidly uh, or and are more extreme, extreme sorry, therefore making them often not sustainable long term. The healthy weight loss part of the question is a lot harder to answer and once again I find it helpful to kind of break it up. So if we're talking about a weight loss approach that's quite clear we're focusing on reducing weight the healthy part if we to were to divine health historically at least we used to take quite a, a kind of narrow view of health which was the absence of disease but that's not accessible to all people and i often like to take a much more holistic view where we consider not just physical health but also social health psychological health emotional and spiritual health as well so when we put those two, uh, those three, four words together, healthy weight loss approach, for the vast majority of people, I actually don't think such a thing exists. Weight loss, it's a tricky one. Weight loss can be promoting of our social health in a sense that when someone loses weight, thanks to the anti-fat bias in our society and often the internalized anti-fat bias it can mean that when people lose weight they often gain gain a greater sense of belonging and acceptance both by others and by themselves hereby improving their social health and then it can also get a bit more complicated in the way that if the behaviors that someone is using to achieve weight loss involves restricting certain foods, this can then impact social health negatively in the way that socializing is often done around food. So we can have kind of both positive and negative impacts to social health. Now, when it comes to physical health, there may be a small proportion of people with you know, for which have very specific circumstances and have had very specific changes in their body that for them that weight loss might be health promoting in that physical sense. But this is often a much smaller, smaller group of people than what we're made to believe. And because often we're made to believe that weight loss is health promoting for everybody. And so the other thing that I like to think about is that when it comes to physical health, actually when it comes to physical, psychological, social health, whatever, we need to remember that we should be looking at long-term factors. In that, we need to consider the fact that the research shows that weight loss is maximal at 6 to 12 months, but 95% of people will have regained all that weight back by the 2 to 5 year mark, and many people will have gained back more. So if we're looking at the long-term impacts on physical and emotional well-being, they're actually negative regardless of whether it's deemed a quote-unquote healthy weight loss approach or it's just a weight loss approach. Like whatever way for most people, long-term, it's actually going to be negative physically and emotionally and socially as well. Uh, and, you know, I could go down a rabbit hole talking about the impact of weight cycling. So our body go, weight going up and down and how negative that is for our physical health. Um, but safe to say that kind of healthy weight loss approach, I, I don't think that really exists for the majority of people. So I guess what I think they were trying to get at with the question is, you know, 
what's an alternative to crash dieting and I would say that the alternative is not focusing on weight at all but rather focusing on just those things you know take out that middleman so just focusing on physical health so psychological health emotional social and spiritual health and then go from there <laughs> so that's question one question two what other potential risks associated with rapid weight loss so with this question the risks that we see are often going to be dependent on the methods and the extremity of the behaviors someone uses to lose weight in my domain, it often involves some form of nutritional restriction, which comes with a number of risks. And before I go into them, I actually want to highlight that these potential risks aren't just relevant if weight loss is rapid or significant. If people are using disordered behaviors, even if their weight loss is gradual or plateaus, the risk can still be very high. And I've seen that over and over again. So physically, what we see uh, is malnutrition and pretty much all the crummy symptoms that and risky symptoms that come with malnutrition. So these are things like low energy, mood dysregulation, such as anxiety or feeling low, feeling cold all the time, hair loss, poor skin integrity and premature aging, might notice things like breaking nails, micronutrient deficiencies, uh, trouble concentrating or brain fog getting sick more often, gut symptoms such as bloating, early satiety and constipation. And then at the more extreme end, we might often see things like losing our period, fertility struggles, dysregulation in our blood tests like our electrolytes, immune markers in liver function, and then dizziness and palpitations. So all pretty scary stuff. In terms of the psychological side of things, I think I already mentioned moon challenges, but often what we see is people becoming more rigid and rule-based and serious and kind of losing that ability to laugh and joke around. And this is just, you know, when we are undernourished, when we're not getting our basic nutrition needs being met, then our body pushes us into that fight or flight state. And I kind of like to call that our meerkat state, right? We're like always on edge when we, we're not going to joke around and play and socialize when we're in that state. And so that leads to kind of the social risks, which often lead to things like social withdrawal and isolation. And once again, that can also, um, the fact that we socialize around food can also be um, cause that too. There are other risks, particularly if things like excessive exercise is involved, when we might look at the impacts on, you know, bone health and injuries, for example. But all in all, uh, yeah, rapid weight loss or more so restriction restrictive behaviors around nutrition do come with quite a few risks third question what role can proper nutrition play in the eating disorder recovery process so pretty much everything that i mentioned in that last question often improves with better nutrition it usually doesn't solve the underlying cause of an eating disorder as the eating disorders are often a coping strategy for dealing with difficulties in life, whether they be difficulties from the past or present. Uh, but nutrition can certainly solve some of those things I mentioned before and support people in their nourishment and cognitive functioning. Uh, and that can get people to a level that where the important therapeutic work can then take place to help people to develop those new coping strategies alongside the nutrition related work that I do. 
I will also say that, you know, nutrition renourishing also doesn't solve the bigger problem that is diet culture and how sucky our society is and its oppression of people in bigger bodies so that I often find needs to we need to take a bit more of a broader approach in that um, and doing advocacy in the work that I do. The fourth question is how can people distinguish between evidence-based nutrition guidance and fad diets or misinformation on the internet? So with the evidence-based nutrition guidance I like to think in terms of things like the quality of research that we look at, uh, particularly whether it's long term, uh, looking for, you know, greater than two to five years, ideally looking at who is writing it so we can look at their credentials. Um, But I also like to acknowledge that even people with credentials have biases as well, me included. So I also like to give a shout out to the people who are doing really important work in the space space that have their own lived experience and knowing that lived experiences are really valuable nutrition guidance to look for as well. Now, the easiest thing to probably do is to actually look at uh, the misinformation side of things or the fad diet side of things. And I like to call these our diet culture red flags. So if we're reading nutrition information and it's really black and white or all or nothing or uh, places food as good or bad, then that's definitely a red flag. Similarly, if it's really rigid and doesn't have any flexibility in it, so it's often quite rule-based, once again, big red flag. I know it's hard online to get individualized information, but if the information lacks individualization in the way that it would say this might not be appropriate for everyone, or if this is your situation, then you could change it in this way, or has some kind of nuance to it, If it doesn't have any of that, then that's usually a red flag. Uh, If the recommendations are extreme or unsustainable, if they involve cutting out entire food groups, and then lastly, if the information neglects to mention the importance of our psychological well-being and its role in health, then I would say all of those things are pretty big waving red flags that we can look out for. How can someone set realistic goals and achieve quote-unquote weight loss goals similar to my answer to the first question I actually don't think it is helpful to focus on weight loss at all for the majority of people in my practice I actually make it very clear with clients that I don't focus on weight or weight loss I do not think it's supportive for our physical or psychological health Often people wind up in a cycle of yo-yo dieting and it takes up so much precious brain space and often has negative health implications. In saying that, I absolutely don't want to shame anyone for wanting to focus on weight loss. It makes sense given how messed up our culture is in terms of the anti-fat bias and weight stigma that people face on a daily basis. So I don't want to make someone think that they're wrong for wanting to lose weight. I think it's a really understandable thing to want. And I'll often say to clients that their thoughts and feelings about their body are always welcome in the room. And ethically, working towards weight loss goals isn't something that I can do uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that it's not supportive of people's overall long-term well-being. Last question, what is a safe rate of weight loss to aim for? 
Once again, I think I just answered that question already. And I always like to say that bodies will body. <laughs> Human bodies are designed to heal. They look for equilibrium and homeostasis. So when we can support them, nourish them, nurture them physically and psychologically, they will do their absolute best to put us in a our bodies in a happy, healthy state. And you know, it may be weight loss for some, it may be stability for others, it may be gain for others still, or it might be loss then gain or gain then loss. I can't say <laughs> for what person what would happen. Uh, but one thing is for certain is that bodies are always changing, they're really dynamic, and they will do what they need to do when we focus on looking after them. And I find that just a much, much, much more supportive focus is to focus on all of the other aspects of well-being and let bodies do what they will do. So those were the questions for the interview. I think there were, yeah, six of them. So let me then uh, transition to the radio interview, um, which I did a few couple of weeks back. So the radio interview was based on the CSIRO uh, which is Australia's National Science Agency, releasing their healthy diet score report. So what they did is that they invited people across Australia to uh, participate in an online survey between May 2015 and July 2023. And the survey assessed nine areas of diet quality and uh, estimated compliance with the Australian Dietary Guideline and gave it a score out of 100. So over 235,000 adults responded over that eight-year period and the results revealed an average diet score of 55 out of 100 and it uh, yeah, highlighted some of the Australians most at risk from their eating patterns um, and you know things like they organized it into uh, jobs. I specifically wanted to look at the media reporting on this um, before doing the interview on the radio. And to be honest, I was not surprised with what I found. Some of the headings that I read uh, were things like, quote unquote, eating habit woes, Aussie diet downfall. A new report shows the nation is failing when it comes to embracing a balanced diet and even shows some of the occupations most at risk. That's a good one, isn't it? Um, and then another one, quote unquote, junk food and alcohol dominate Aussie diets with only two in five getting enough veg, CSIRO finds. Right. Yeah. So as uh, like reading those headlines, unfortunately, sadly, I wasn't surprised. Like the terminology is so stigmatizing. Things like woes and downfall and failing and junk food right but I'd really hope that within articles I might find a bit more of a smarter and a more critical analysis of the report reports but unfortunately I didn't it was all very similar and so pretty much if I were to summarize the tone of the articles were you know Aussie diets are abysmal construction workers had the poorest diets and retirees and people in the fitness industry the best here are some healthy eating tips it's up to the individual to improve their eating to reduce the risk of chronic health conditions you can absolutely go have a look at the articles but that is how I would summarize them horrible <laughs> truly truly predictable um so 
with that as a backdrop to the radio interview, like I said, I don't have the exact questions, but I'll, I'll answer them from memory. So pretty much what they asked me was, what are your thoughts on the CSIRO research and reporting? So what I wanted to say is that I don't deny that the information that they're providing isn't true, right? It is entirely possible that the dietary patterns they're describing are accurate. You know, there's uh, lots of people answered the survey and it was done over a long time, which is really great. And it's the headlines that really bothered me. You know, research is so important to see the state of dietary patterns in Australia, but the reporting is where I think we ran into a lot of issues. So the first issue that I saw is that most articles were leaving out the real roots or the core of the issue with people's nutrition. So many articles skimmed over the role that the like you know systemic issues play. They're not talking about how socioeconomic status often translates to poorer health, the cost of groceries and fresh foods nowadays, let alone the time that it takes to to prepare healthy foods when so many people are time poor and under so much financial stress at the moment. And it's funny because the articles will say things like health is wealth and you can't put a price on health which just makes me laugh because generally if you don't have wealth you're also less likely to have health and I just felt that the articles were so oh they, there was just no critical analysis whatsoever they were kind of just regurgitating same old diet culture beliefs and even with uh, a couple of the articles they cite construction workers as having the poorest dietary patterns but when you actually look at the report, people who were unemployed actually had the worst dietary patterns. But it's a much less saucy headline, isn't it? <laughs> unemployed people, worst dietary patterns. Whereas, you know, it, it seemed like the you know media just wanted to point the finger at construction workers because it's like, haha, <laughs> not as funny <laughs> as when it's other people that are unemployed. And I just we have to face the fact that there are more systemic issues at play which aren't easily solved by just learning to eat better, as most articles imply. So all in all, I found the reporting really disappointing. The second thing I noticed, and I mentioned this before, that there was a lot of shame embedded in the language around food, like quote-unquote junk food, or how they were talking about people's bodies using saying things like the nation's waistline and quote-unquote obesity and I always come back to the fact like how do we expect people to care for a body that they themselves are being told is wrong and shameful and unworthy of care you know shame is never a good motivator for long-term change so once again highly disappointed by the reporting on the topic that was the main question on the radio uh, when I spoke to someone prior to actually going on the radio show, they were also asking how I felt about how people in healthcare, what their view of kind of weight is. And so I also prepared a little bit of a rant about that as well. When I'm thinking about people that work in healthcare, we're often trained in a weight-centric paradigm. And we're trying to see weight as the, as the cause of poor health or health issues, which I'm not saying that weight doesn't play a role in health, but just to use weight or BMI as a measure is such a narrow view of things. When we acknowledge that humans come in all shapes and sizes, 
just naturally, <laughs> then and when we can get a sense of someone's weight history or their journey in their bodies, when we can get a sense of their health behaviors, you know, their nutrition, movement, smoking, alcohol, etc., when we can get a sense of their the environmental contributors, things like stress, history of trauma, socioeconomic status, social determinants of health, and so forth, only then can we form a picture. So I totally, totally acknowledge that health professionals are often short on time, and a lot of those things that I just mentioned aren't easy fixes, but at a bare minimum, as an overarching viewpoint, how can we make sure that we're treating people with the respect and that they deserve acknowledging their humanity and their autonomy and self-sovereignty, right? How can we do our best to reduce the weight and health stigma in our practice at a minimum? And then if possible, how can we then look at the variety of different things that impact someone's well-being rather than just using weight as a scapegoat? When we understand the prevalence of weight stigma in healthcare, it's really hard not to see the importance of this for well-being and health, if that's the thing that we're meant to be focusing on as healthcare providers, right? Um, and then the last question I got on the radio show was pretty much what is intuitive eating? So essentially, I'm sure a lot of you already know, but intuitive eating is based on a book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, who are a couple of lovely dietitians in the United States. And it's a really, it's, it's truly like quite a well-researched model of healing someone's relationship with food and their body and actually supporting someone's well-being. And it consists of 10 principles. Now, what I love about intuitive eating is that at, at kind of the essence of it is that it provides a framework for people to shift away from yo-yo dieting or, you know, a health kick or intermittent fasting or whatever we might call it and shift away from that and find a new way to treat their bodies, which rather than looking at the external that is that prescribed eating pattern or a number on the scale or you know a percentage of macros whatever so shifting away from the external and shifting towards an internal and that internal is helping people to tune back into the wisdom of their body rediscover satisfaction in eating and learn tools for learning to respect their body and cope with emotion and find joy in movement and do all the other wonderful things that make up those 10 principles and there we have it those were the key questions that I got in the couple of interviews I did recently. Thank you for bearing with me as I had my round and got that off my chest. Feels a lot better now. If you have any thoughts on anything I had to say, I would love to hear from you. Head over to my Instagram at Nadia Maxwell Nutrition and let me know what you think. Once again, thank you for being here. If you're happy to leave me a five-star review, it would mean so much to me. Otherwise, I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Good Enough Nutrition. If you have thoughts or questions from today's episode, hit me up over on my Instagram at Nutrition. If you have a moment to rate or review the podcast, that would be amazing. Or share that you're listening on your stories and tag me. I absolutely love to see it. As always, remember that guilt has no place near our food or bodies and you are good enough as you are always. Oh, 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 oh,